Have you or someone you know had your life turned upside down because of your past? Of course I have. Everyone does background checks now, which makes it hard to bounce back. What do you believe? I believe your background shouldn't hold you back. It, sh- it should pay you back. This podcast will inspire you, motivate you, and inform you with everything you need to rise above your past and, and not be afraid to say, go, go ahead, check my background. My name is J. Dan Gum, and this is is background check you already know let's go you can check my background i'm a forgiving felon so tell them that i won't back down now you can bet i won't live in regret it's time to earn some respect you are tuning in to background check hey everyone welcome to background check podcast brought to you as always by forgiven felons helping people with the past realize their future you might be saying, well, what, what do you do at Forgiven Felons? Well, we help men coming out of prison get back on their feet by providing the practical, physical, and spiritual tools they need to successfully re-enter society and become a productive citizen. If you want to know more info about Forgiven Felons, visit us on the web at ForgivenFelons.org. Uh, if you or your company would like to be a sponsor of the show or a particular episode, let us know. You'll get out uh, shout-outs right here before the show, after the show, and on the show page on the website as well. And finally, if you haven't seen the documentary, you need to watch it, share it. It's on Roku TV, so you can watch it on the Roku app on your your smartphone. You can watch it on Roku TV on the Roku channel. Uh, You can watch it on Apple TV on the Roku channel. Anything that you can get Roku on, you can watch Forgiven Felons. It's also on Tubi TV, if you've heard of that. And these are all free. Background Check Podcast. What is it all about? We are, uh, this is the 12th episode, so we're 12 episodes in. How are we doing so far? You know, let us know. Uh, The comments are open below the show notes. Let us know how we're doing. You know, uh, tell us about one of your favorite episodes, one of your favorite interviews. You know, my goal on this was to give people a platform, mostly our guys, but we haven't had any guys that are really wanting to do it yet, but I think we're going to have a few coming up. But my goal was to provide a platform for people to share their stories. All the time people get out of prison or when I was in prison, I would hear them say, I want to be able to share my story somehow, some way. And so I want to, I want to provide that for these guys. And the show will include motivational interviews, inspirational interviews, and informational interviews. We got a show coming up next week about uh, a re-entry program, the Wayback House. And so that one's going to be more informational, even though they have some inspirational stories and testimonies to go along with it. Sometimes, uh, like we had a judge on, that was all information as well. We have a parole lawyer coming up, but most of them have been inspirational and motivational. Uh, But anyway, it just has to do with anyone whose life, this podcast is for anyone whose life, theirs, their families, their friends that have been impacted by incarceration. And sometimes like today, I'll do a solo episode about a specific topic. We're going to talk about a topic that has several elements to it. Sometimes I'll have guests on, which I've done most mostly. And, um, and then sometimes I'll just have maybe a motivational speaker on, you know, just to talk about, they may not even be a felon, but but these stories are mostly going to be about people not letting their past define them, their environment define them. They're, uh, they're making sure that nothing in their past holds them back. 
Today, it's a solo episode, and we're going to talk, if I were to put a title on this episode, which I think I did, I'm just going to say Marked for Life, Marked for Life, and the topic is going to be about the challenges that felons face coming out of prison. Now, I know there's going to be people out there listening that are going to say, hey, you did the crime, you got to do the time, and, and, and I get that, I understand that. You know, but, you know, when we're let out of prison, we have been deemed fit for society. In fact, one of the parole denials is uh, danger to society. That's one of their favorite, most common parole denials is danger to society. And that's marking us even while we're in prison. You know, it's putting a label on us that we're a dangerous criminal. I know there's that's a fa- that's a really good common theme now, you know, with COVID and, and people, um, choosing to let inmates out of prison, everybody's just in an uproar. Oh, they're letting dangerous criminals out of prison. No, they're not. They're not letting dangerous criminals out of prison. And if you believe that, then you're just, I mean, you're part of the sheep. This is believing everything the media says, because most of the people that are getting out under the COVID coronavirus thing, we're all getting out anyway. They were all within six months of, of, of being released anyway. So the fact that they were letting them out, quote unquote, because of coronavirus is not even true anyway. But all that makes great stories and, and some of y'all believe them. But these aren't dangerous criminals. And even if what they did 20 years ago was a dangerous crime, they've been deemed reformed by parole and and said that they're not a danger to society anymore. So just, you know, they let me out one time. Okay. And I was dangerous. I was, I was dangerous with a weapon. A car is my weapon and they let me out. But you know what? I made a change on the inside. And a lot of these people make changes on the inside, but when they get here on the outside to a broken system, a broken parole system, a system that is set up for us to fail. I really believe with all my heart that my parole officers, at least two out of the five that I had in two years, wanted to send me back to prison. And I say that that, that I believe that because that's the way they acted. That's the way they talked. They tried to put fear in me. If you don't do this, you're gonna, I'm going to send you back. If you don't do that, I'm going to send you back. Everything was, I'm going to send you back. And that's one of the challenges that we face coming out is that we have to have somebody watching over us that doesn't even want to watch over us. They're there to collect a paycheck. They, they care nothing about our personal rehabilitation. All they care about is getting all the rules right that they have been told they have to enforce us with. Okay, so it's, it's a challenge. And again, whether you want to believe that we deserve to be out or not, whether you want to believe that we're marked for life, because of a mistake we made, I refuse to believe that I have to be marked for life. I was somebody that said, I'm not going to let this broken prison system keep me from getting better. I'm not going to let this broken parole system keep me from getting better. One of the things that happened when I first got out was my dad was diagnosed with esophageal cancer within about five or six months from me getting out. And he had to go through, I mean, I think it was weekly, Monday through Friday. You know, we had we had to take him to get treatment. Well, when I first got out of prison, 
I had a valid driver's license. But parole said, they, they made up their own stipulation and said, you're not allowed to drive. The state of Texas allowed me to drive. You know, my I served my suspension. Uh, I paid whatever fees I needed to pay. And the state of Texas allowed me to drive. But parole put their own stipulation and said, we're not going to allow you to drive for six months. Don't even talk to me for six months. And I was like, all right, well, that's fine. Well, about four months in, uh, we had to take my dad to the hospital. So it was about it was about five months when they when they diagnosed him, and we're all talking as a family to see who was going to take him, and and I was the only one that had free time because I couldn't I couldn't find a, a steady job, you know. And one of the challenges I had also was I was in Cedar Hill, Texas, where no public transportation is, so I had to depend on family and friends to take me anywhere and everywhere. And parole doesn't really care about that. Parole just wants you to get there and be there when you're supposed to. And they don't, they don't, they don't really care about it. And listen, there's some good parole officers. There's some really good parole officers that are, their hands are tied because of a bad system, a broken system. Their hands are tied and they have to do things that they know, they know in their heart of hearts that this isn't the way to rehabilitate someone. But about five months in, he had to start chemo and we didn't have anybody take him except me. And I was told not to even talk to her for six months and they would consider it. So I went to her after five months and she said, no, I said, my dad has cancer and I'm the only one that can take him. No. Can we talk to a supervisor? Yes, but they're going to say no too. And they usually do. Supervisors usually, usually take the side of their officer. But then they said, well, if you can prove he's got cancer, we'll, we'll, we'll approve you to, to drive him. And then they only wanted me driving him to chemo. And that was just the most ridiculous thing for me. If, if I had been able to drive, I probably could have found a, a lot better job a lot quicker. A lot quicker. So that's one of the challenges we face in, in parole. Another challenge is, is finding work. And one of my biggest challenges was not being able to get places to fill out applications. And, and don't get me wrong, I had people, great people, offer me a first job and they picked me up. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that. It, it didn't work out. I wasn't a good uh, worker for that type of work. So we kind of mutually parted ways. But a job, and a really good job, is a barrier. We had Brian Kelly from PEP, Prison Entrepreneur Program. He, he broke it all down. He said, man, in today's living conditions and economy, someone needs to make $22 an hour to make it on their own. $22 an hour. And that's if you're single and you don't have anybody um, to take care of. So th that's crazy. And most of these guys getting out of prison start off at 10 to $15 an hour. It's kind of crazy, but that, that, that is a challenge. That's a challenge. Uh, finding the, finding the right job, but even having the ability to get to that job, you know, and that, that same, that same thing puts pressure on families. And that's a challenge for the family is to, they, th their loved one is out, but now they have to figure out a way to get them to work, to get all their documents ready, all this stuff. 
And so I, I just do want to take time out to say, look, if my, I'm grateful for my mom and dad that took me in, they were so good to me that I, I didn't need a transitional house. They were understanding. They were emotionally stable. I was emotionally stable. So but there were still some things that we had to work through. I mean, I, I wanted to stay up late and, and talk with my church groups, be out with my church group. But they were like, hey, at midnight, we're locking the 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 upper deadbolt. <laughs> That's the deadbolt. There, there's no key to on the outside. I had to work through those things. I had rules of the house that I had to follow. I didn't really like them, but I, I followed them because... It's my mom and dad, and I wanted to honor honor their their house. More challenges, you know. The, one of the biggest challenges we have as a, as a transitional house is for guys when they come out and they're subjected to an ankle monitor. And I know you'll hear stories of people that are bad stories about people that should have been on an ankle monitor. And I'm not I'm not going to sit here and say that that some people shouldn't be. But I had a I had a phone call with the deputy director of parole who said that he he came up through the ranks as a parole officer and that he was there when they implemented these things. And they were there to basically send people back to prison is what he said. He said that it was really an antiquated system. And, you know, if something is that antiquated and it's been proven that it only it's not it's not useful in rehabilitation then what is it good for and it's just another cog in the wheel of money making revenue income for the state of Texas but it it poses a challenge these ankle monitors pose a challenge there's two types of ankle monitors there's electronic monitoring which is called the curfew the curfew monitor and that is that's not a bad one it's one that lets you leave the house at a certain time and then you have to be back in the house by a certain time. But once you're back in the house, you can't even leave to go out the front door. So when you get home at 5 p.m. from work, and you can't even go check the mail. You can't take the trash out. You can't go work on your car in the garage. You can't go grill on the, on the patio. You can't do any of that stuff. You can't do any yard work. You can't do any of that stuff. It's very super restrictive on what you can do when you are, uh, when your time for to be at the house is up. So then there's the SISP. And you're like, what is SISP? It, well, it simply stands for Super Intensive Supervision Program. Super Intensive Supervision Program. They couldn't come up with another name for something this restrictive. So they just called it Super Intensive <laughs> Supervision. And it's very intense. Let me tell you the purpose, the mission, the purpose of this program, it, it, and this is right off the TDCJ website, to establish special condition SISP as a special condition of parole and to establish a procedure for imposing super intensive supervision restrictions as a condition of parole or mandatory supervision, to submit to electronic monitoring and to comply with the daily activity schedule, and you cannot travel within or beyond county of residence without approval from supervising parole officer. Now, what SISP means is that you can't do anything recreational. You can't go to a fast food restaurant. You can't even drive through a fast food restaurant. One of our guys thought he was going back to prison just recently, last week, because his his family member, they were bringing him home from Walmart, 
and the Taco Bell drive-through was right in the same right right there, and they went through the drive-through, and he got written up for that, and he was scared. He he didn't know what a write-up meant. He didn't know if that meant he was going back to prison, but I told him no. It just means that you you're delayed in you know some things, and when you get off when you get off the ankle monitor, every violation delays it even more. You can't go anywhere recreational. You can't go get a gym membership. You can't be healthy. You can't even, like I said, you can't even go to the garage. SISP means that it's unlike the curfew monitor where you can leave the house and be back at a certain time. SISP, you have to turn in a schedule for approval ahead of time. So you have to plan your whole week out knowing that you're going to go to the bank. You're going to go to the food stamp office, you're going to go here, you're going to go there. You, you don't even know what job interviews you have coming up yet, so you can't put them on your schedule. But you got to plan your whole week out, and you can't go anywhere other than what's on your schedule. And if you do, you're going to get written up. And then when you get home, again, you cannot go to the garage, you can't go on the porch, you can't, you can't do anything once you get home. And let me tell you how restrictive this is. And I've gone to bat for some of our guys, and we've gotten some of these restrictions loosened because some parole officers will take it upon themselves to make them more strict than they should be. But I've gone to bat for some of these guys, and here's the reason why. Because a couple years back, we had a guy, a resident, 76-year-old man, Jim, comes to our house out of prison, 16 years. He's a military vet. He's in tip-top shape for an old man. You wouldn't even know. You wouldn't think he was over 50. He was on SISP. He's retired. He didn't have to work. So he was basically just locked down. They said the only only time you leave the house is to go to church or to go to work. And he didn't have to go to work because he had a nice retirement. And so he stayed home. But they wouldn't let him go work out in the yard. We had a stationary bike in the garage. And I said, well, ask them if, if you can go out there for 30 minutes every day. And, you know, we have a small house, so, we, you know, we, we can't just bring the stationary bike inside, but it's in the garage. And he asked if he could go ride it 30 minutes a day, and they said no. So he would start scheduling appointments at the VA just to, just to get out of the house. They, they only wanted him sitting inside the house. He couldn't do yard work. They wouldn't let him do anything. And he began to gain weight. And he went to the VA one day, and the doctor said, Jim, you got to start exercising. And I came to the house one day, and he's almost running from one end of the house to the other. I said, Jim, I got steps in here, man. If you fall and hurt yourself, we can't have that, man. And he's and he looked at me with tears in his eyes. And he said, Jadan, I'm I'm gonna go back into my next parole meeting and I'm 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 gonna tell him I want to go back to prison. And he said it with tears in his eyes. I said, Jim, you you can't do that, man. He goes, this is he goes, I can't do this. He was in prison. I was allowed to go to church. In prison, I was allowed to go to the commissary to buy things. In prison, I was allowed to go to my job to do work. In prison, I was allowed to get out and, and go to the rec yard and work out. He said, this is worse than prison. And it broke my heart. And I, and I told him, I said, well, they're not going to send you back just because you want to. So you're going to have to go in there and you're going to hit your, you're going to hit your parole officer in the face. And then that will get you sent back. And he just laughed because he wasn't going to hit his parole officer. He's too nice of a guy. But not too long after that, I get a call from his son. I said, hey, JDM, we're on the way to the hospital, the VA. I said, what happened? 
He said this morning Jim was eating breakfast at the VA, watching sports in the cafeteria, and he fell over and had a heart attack. After I grieved and mourned with, because Jim didn't make it. They worked on him for eight hours, and they brought him back to life three times, resuscitated him several times, and he didn't make it. And I just wonder if he had been allowed to do some exercise, if he'd have remained healthy enough to live longer. Now, I will say this. I, I, I had a talk last year with a deputy de- director, and, and they've, they've made some, some changes, not policy changes, but they've just made, they've given us the ability to let, they told us, they told us, they said, hey, if a guy has a medical issue and, they, and the, a note from the doctor, they have to provide time for them to work out. And you know what? That was last year when he said that. And we were just tested on that just recently. One of our guys got out. He's diabetic. He's overweight. And the doctor said he needs to be working out daily. And the one parole officer said, well, I'll let you go out there three days a week. And he came to me and he said, J.D. my doctor wants me working out every day. And so I I decided to call a supervisor and just say, look, we've already been down this road. This guy has a doctor's note that says he needs to be working out daily. And they told him no. Well, they got it fixed. But again, another challenge. If I wasn't in these guys' lives, they would just be get they would they would get run all over. And that's the main reason I'm here. A lot of these parole officers and Supervisors think I caught all these guys, but it's not. It's just because I want them to make sure that they are getting the best chance to rehabilitate body, soul, and spirit. Some of the other challenges we face, and, and, and listen, these these ankle monitor challenges, they're not going to go away without some kind of law changing. We need to change the laws. Um, and it's going to be hard to, to change these laws because the, the amount of money and revenue that comes in from these third-party vendors. Public transportation, these guys got to be able to be near public transportation. We are. But listen, that's another thing. If you're a family member and and you're wanting your loved one to parole to you, you know, think about where you're at. If you're not near public transportation, then you're going to have to take them everywhere they go until they get a car and until they can drive. Now, getting their driver's license is another issue. Now, right now during COVID, it's worse because... We got two guys that need their license and their appointments, their, their, their nearest appointments are December and January to, to get their driver, to get, to, to get an ID, period. All they're carrying around is their prison ID. They can't open up a bank account unless they have a secondary ID like a social security card or a birth certificate. Usually re-entry in prison in Texas, they, they, they set you up with all that, but they're suffering from the coronavirus slowdowns as well. So these guys are getting out without all their documentation and it's causing them not to be able to get jobs quick enough, bank accounts open quick enough. Uh, the other the other challenge with that is there's openings like in a day or two if we can take them to Longview to get their ID. But they can't travel outside of their county at all. And I already asked the parole officer, I said, hey man, these guys can get their state IDs now in Longview. Can we take one day to go down there and get them and bring them back? No, no. But yet the parole is going to stay on them and put pressure. Hey, you need to get an ID. You need to get an ID. And then, you know, the, the job that they're, they both finally got a job. 
because Daniel, who's been locked up for 30 years, when he was 17, he's been he's 47 now, and he finally got his birth certificate. So the company that hires a lot of our guys, which is a staffing company called VSSI, they hire a lot of our guys and they take the prison ID, but you got to have a secondary ID like a social security card or birth certificate. So now they're, they're both working. And I got a text yesterday from Daniel and they're both working. So that's awesome. But you know, some of the other challenges, these are just challenges like someone I got out and then some that these are, these are challenges these guys are going through at our transitional house. But let me tell you some other challenges, man, just this felon, this marked for life stays on your back, man. When my dad died a year after I got out of prison, my mom decided to start writing her will. And she put me as the uh, executor of her will. And our lawyer said, no, you can't have Jadan as the executor of your will. And we were like, why? And he said, because you're a felon. Felons can't execute wills. That's crazy. That is crazy. I don't, I don't, I don't get that. You know, and um, when I was engaged to Jessamy, and just before we were about to get married, she pointed out the apartment complex that she wanted to live in. And I said, okay, I'll try. And I know she didn't know what I meant by that, but I knew what I was going to be facing. Even though I was just about to be off parole, I knew that that, that I was marked for life. So I went and filled out the whole application, took it back, handed it to the leasing manager there. And it was, I, I guess I just looked like a felon because she turned right to that page that said, you know, had the box, you know, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And she said, Mr. Gum, I'm sorry, I, we don't take, we don't allow felons to live in our, our complexes. And I, and I honestly, I started to walk out when I just felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, you walk back in and you tell them that you want to talk to or the number four, a supervisor. And so I was like, all right, well, cool. So I went and asked her, I said, hey, I don't, I don't want to challenge your authority because it looks like you're the top dog here, but is there a number I can call and talk to a supervisor and just let them know because that, that felony doesn't define who I am today. It describes who I used to be, but it doesn't describe who I am now. And I'm about to get married, and I don't want my past to hold my, my future wife back. And she said, yeah, well, the supervisor is here right now. So I talked to them. He said, well, let me, let me, let me think about it. He called me in two weeks. His supervisor actually called me in two weeks and said, Mr. Gunn, we never break this policy. And I said, okay, well, at least I tried. They said, but we're going to break it for you and your new bride. So we're going to let you live there. And you know what? It was awesome. It was great to, to, to bust down that obstacle. And the, and the apartments were cheaply made. And they were brand new, but they were cheap and they weren't even worth it. We ended up moving and buying our own house after that, which was another thing. You know, they, they, my criminal, my criminal background came into check, came into play. I think when I, when I got life insurance, when I applied for our first mortgage and it comes into play so many, so many times. And I just don't understand. I really don't understand why. One of the things that I have to deal with every, almost every day now. When people sit down, felons that have been out for years, families that have either either spouse has a felony, when they grow in their family, they have another child, they need a bigger place, they, they need a two-bedroom instead of a one-bedroom apartment, you know, or they're, they're moving out of state. I'm telling you, man, I get calls. I'm, if, I may place them for you if I have the time. 
but I get calls every day saying, hey, we've been living at this apartment. We need a bigger one. There's nothing here. Uh, we're, we're looking, and everybody's saying that they don't take felons. Coming from out of state, and I don't know if just Dallas is worse than everybody else, but it's really bad in Dallas. It's bad in Houston, too. It's bad in Texas. And Texas, y'all just need to loosen up, man. Come on, Governor Abbott, you know. Uh, y'all need to loosen up. We need, to, we, need, we need places for these felons to live if you're going to incarcerate the second most inmates in the nation then you need to be able to provide them with places to live when we get out that's just the bottom line but i get calls and it breaks my heart you know we show up on the first page of a google search when people type in housing for felons in dallas or fort worth and it, and it comes up a few apartments come up but then we're right there usually third or fourth down on the first page, it says forgiven felons. And so they call thinking we are an apartment complex. They think we're, you know, an apartment locator, housing locator. They think we're all this. And I have to tell them we're just a transitional house. But it lets me know that there's so many hurting families out there. A wife called me with, with a, uh, her husband was a federal inmate. He'd been out. He was living in a, in a transitional home. You know, they got to go to Volunteers of America. When they first get out, he got a job. They could not find a place to live together because the place she was living would not allow a felon to live with her. And they were just in tears trying to find a place to live. I'm a chaplain for another company called Patriot Delivery. And one of our drivers, she's, she said, hey, I, I'm living with my boyfriend. He's been living in the same apartments for 11 years and they, the management company changed hands, and they said they, they, said they weren't going to renew his lease. He'd been living there 11 years, but they decided not to renew his lease. And I had to help them call all, all over town to find a, a place that would take him. These are the challenges that the parolees face for life, or marked for life, unless things change. I love what they're doing in Michigan. My friend Priscilla... Is, is just helping them change some laws up there, the Clean Slate Act that just, if, if you've, someone like me, if I was living in Michigan, all my crimes, gone, gone. You couldn't tell, you couldn't, you couldn't pull them up on a background check anymore because I've been out 14 years off parole 12 and I've done so many good things, but Texas doesn't have that, you know. I love my state, but man, we, we do not want people to rehabilitate. But those are, those are just some of the challenges, you know, that, that parolees face. And again, you know, I'm far, from, I'm far from done my time, but I still am going to suffer repercussions for the rest of my life for this, this label that I have. And so many more out there like me. The last thing I want to talk about is the challenges the families face. You families are amazing. It's hard when you take somebody in to your own home from prison. The challenges, the adjustment curve, the emotional curve, the mental curve. There's we, we get a lot of people that come to our house that paroled to their family. And the tensions became so strong that they had to get out. And it's tough. It's tough. And I, I hate that I put my family through all that. My family came through with flying colors. And I thank you, Mom. And I thank you, Dad, up in heaven. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for uh, helping me through all this. 
families, bless your heart for taking your loved one in. It's better to find a, a, a great faith-based transitional home. Let them spend three or four months there. You kind of kind of help them and let the let the faith-based transitional house help get all their documents, help get them to all the places they need to go, and then and then if you want them to move back in with you, that that, that might be a an easier, better route. But thank you, families. But the, there's challenges on y'all that y'all face, getting them to and from places, finding them clothes, helping them financially. When some of you already just, they've eaten you out of house and home already from visitation, all those quarters that you have to bring in visitation time. But the challenges are tough. And yes, you know, I try to get these guys to, to take their focus off that ankle monitor, take their focus off the, the, the just no after no after no for jobs, the no after no after no for apartments and, and housing. I try to tell them to take their focus off that and just find the good. But man, it's tough sometimes. It's tough. I don't, I personally do not believe that we should be having this, our crimes held over our head for the rest of our lives like our state and, and government do. And I still get it with friends and and people that know me, man, you know, I still, I still think there's some friends that believe I, I, I belong back in prison, <laughs> or that they believe that I'm still, I haven't, I haven't changed yet, you know, that I'm still gonna go back to drinking someday. But I'm not. I'm here to stay. I love my wife, my three kids, and I'm gonna continue to help these guys through all these challenges they face. If you know somebody that's gotten out or that is getting out, just know and, and try to understand the, the challenges that we face coming out of prison. Little Daniel, I, I call him little because he's like a little kid. He's 47 and he spent 30 years in prison and he's gone through so much trauma while he was in prison and no parole officer, nobody seems, they will not take the time to find out what he's been through in prison that he had to endure as an 18 and 19 year old inmate in prison. They won't take the time to find that out. And he's a 47 year old scared kid. Some of these guys get out and they have, they're, 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 they're afraid of going back because prison was bad for them. It was bad. And I don't think it should be, parole should be this bad, but it's money driven. It's gonna be hard to change. But listen, families, friends, if you have parolees, people that, are trying to get out, trying to make it. Just know that it's it's super tough on them. And if they had to do it all over, all over again, they wouldn't do their crime and put themselves through this, put you through this. So do your best to understand what they have to go through. And I promise you, I'm helping them understand what you're going through. I know if I can make it and turn my life around, anybody can. Anybody can. Listen, if there's a topic or even a challenge that, I, that I, I missed, I didn't talk about today. And there's tons more. I could talk for three hours. But if you want to hear a topic and have me expound on it, comment below this episode or message me, Instagram, Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on everything. Go to our webpage. Go to the contact page. Get my cell phone number. Call me. Shoot me a text message. Go to our our shop, our merchandise page, and order a shirt. Come to our activities. We, we have breakfast Bible study every Sunday, 8.30 to 9.30. We break bread, and there's there's not very many of us there, so, you know, 
you can wear a mask if you if you want to. You don't have to, but I think most of our guys got this thing back in early January. Come hang out with us. We're going to start open house uh, again later this month, August 22nd. If you want to get on our email list, you can. Things need to change in our state. Things need to change in our country. And a lot of the First Step Act that, that, that changes federal policy doesn't affect us on a state level. And listen, when you talk to the state, the governor and different, different people in politics in our state, they think that they have changed everything and everything's perfect, and it's not. It's not. It's not. It's the best we got now, but it's still got a lot to improve. And it's not rehabilitative as much as it is punitive. And it's more punitive when they get out, I think, than when it was in prison. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Leave us a rating and review on Apple. Shoot us a, a, a topic you'd like for me to expound on. Our next episode features T. Ray, Robert T. Ray Manley, and Katie Milholland of the Wayback Reentry Program. Great friends and great program. We're collaborating with them on a few things. You don't want to miss that. All right. Thanks a lot. And again, check out the check out the webpage, forgivenfelons.org forward slash background check to see all the past episodes. And some good stories on there. We got some good ones coming up. Dave's Killer Bread, Dave Dahl, got him on. Chris Cavallini, Nutrition Solutions. He's a Forbes 500 businessman. Been on their cover twice. He was arrested 17 times before his 18th birthday. And he's the CEO of an amazing company. He grew up in foster care. So we got some good shows coming up for you. I'm J. Dan Gum. I'm a forgiven felon. And this has been Background Check Podcast. See you on the next episode. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Background Check Podcast, brought to you by Forgiven Felons, helping people with a past realize their future. For more information, please visit ForgivenFelons.org. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and please don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss the latest episode. I'm J.D. Gum, and this has been Background Check.